to know what was in your heart of divine tests and a knowing heart by Rav Chanoch Waxman. During their 40 years journey through the desert, the children of Israel were sustained by their daily ration of man, the bread provided for them by God. In thinking about the man, we often relate to the man and God's provision of the man as a matter of practical necessity. By simple logic, a people numbering 600,000 or so grown men alone will require some sort of regular food supply during a desert journey of any length. In line with this perspective, to no surprise, the man is first introduced in response to the people's complaining of their having been brought to the desert to die of starvation, and stated preference to have died back in Egypt, adjacent to bubbling pots of meat, their stomachs satiated with bread. They are very hungry, and rather unhappy about it. The man constitutes the solution to a very practical problem. Alternatively, in what might be thought of as the perspective of Moshe, the man comprises a piece of an all-embracing regimen of miraculous sustenance, part of a larger picture of providential care. In his first reference to the man in Sefer Dvarim, Moshe differentiates between the man and bread. In pointed contrast to Sefer Shmot and its seven times repeated reference to man as a type of bread, Moshe reminds the people that God has fed them man, something unknown to either the people or their forefathers. Living off this mysterious and hitherto unknown substance proves that man lives not by bread alone, but man may live by whatever God decrees. Needless to say, the man is the not-bread, decreed and provided by God that sustained the people for forty years. Immediately after emphasizing the otherness and apparent divine nature of man, the not-bread that fed the people, Moshe reminds the people that your garments did not wear out, nor did your feet swell these forty years. Apparently, Moshe intends to remind the people that they have been enveloped in a providential and miraculous atmosphere. Their sustenance has been openly miraculous, and even the very rules of nature have been suspended. Their clothes have not worn, and despite forty years walking, no one has gotten blisters. In a similar vein, in his second reference to man in Sefer Dvarim, Moshe once again conjoins the images of man, clothing, and walking. As part of the build-up to the final covenant contracted at the end of the book, Moshe once again reminds the children of Israel for the forty years that God has led them in the desert, neither their clothes nor shoes have worn out. But this time Moshe goes a bit further. In a pointed echo of his twice-mentioned description of his forty days upon the mountain as a time when, I did not eat bread nor drink, Moshe refers to the forty years the children of Israel spent in the desert as a time when you did not eat bread nor drink. Apparently, just as Moshe, by virtue of his connection with the divine and divine word, was sustained in a miraculous fashion for a period of forty x while on the mountain, so too the children of Israel were sustained in a miraculous fashion by virtue of connection with the divine for a period of forty x while in the desert. Yet, while the themes of pragmatic sustenance, the probable perspective of the people, and miraculous providence, the apparent perspective of Moshe, certainly constitute central motifs in the story of the man, they do not constitute the entire story. The story of the man consistently emphasizes a third motif, as yet unmentioned until this point. In declaring his intention to Moshe to respond to the people's complaint and provide the man, God states the following, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather each day's portion that day, so that I may test them, anasenu, to see whether they will follow my instructions, or not. 
From God's perspective, the provision of the man is neither a matter of pragmatic necessity nor even miraculous sustenance. Rather, it is an opportunity to test the people, to investigate whether they will follow his commandments or not. Without going into the particulars, suffice it to note that much of the remainder of Parashat Haman concerns legal details such as the requirement not to leave the man over for the morrow, the double portion that fell upon the sixth day, the laws of the Sabbath, and the children of Israel's success or lack of success in keeping the various details of the laws of man. On a similar note, Moshe's primary and only explicit reference to the man in Sefer Dvarim also emphasizes the theme of Nisayon, the testing of the children of Israel by God. The two central verses of the passage that contains the partial citation of Moshe's words quoted above read as follows, And you should remember the whole way which the Lord your God led you these forty years in the desert, so as to cause you hardship, l'ma'an anotcha, to test you, l'nasotcha, to know that which was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he caused you hardship, v'ya'ancha, and he caused you to be hungry, and he fed you the man, which you did not know, and your fathers did not know, so as to make you know that man lives not by bread alone, but man may live by whatever God decrees. While Moshe certainly mentions his read on the man, its nature as miraculous sustenance, he gives primary billing to God's own perspective, first enunciated back in Sefer Shmot. The primary purpose of the man is to test the people. In fact, Apparently, God has deliberately caused the people hardship and hunger. He has led them in the desert on a path that involves hardship, hunger, and the possibility of starvation. He has deliberately structured the situation so as to necessitate the man as a pragmatic necessity that is provided in a miraculous fashion. But neither of these themes constitutes God's end game. The real purpose of the suffering, the near starvation, and the man consists of the test, the trying of the people. This brings us to the nub of the matter. As Maimonides emphasizes in his Guide to the Perplexed, the interpretation of God's agenda presented here, the deliberate causing of hardship and suffering for some purpose other than punishment, seems to contradict the theological principle of God's justice. As Maimonides reminds us, Dvarim teaches us that He is the rock, His deeds are perfect, for all His ways are justice. A faithful God, never false, true and upright is He. While we may not be overly disturbed by theological formulation and proof texts provided by Maimonides, we can easily rephrase this problem in a less abstract philosophical and more textual literary fashion. The passage cited above twice utilizes a variation on the term inui, based on the stem ayin nun and translated above as meaning hardship. In fact, the term probably carries a connotation a bit stronger than hardship. In the Covenant of the Pieces, God informs Abraham that his descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They will serve there and be afflicted, the Inu, by their masters in that foreign land. Later on in Sefer Shmot, the Egyptians do exactly that to the children of Israel. Shmot informs us that the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites in order to afflict them, Laman Anoto. Needless to say, the Egyptians' affliction of the people was to no avail. The more the Israelites were afflicted, Ka'asher ya'anu, the more they multiplied. God eventually sees the affliction, oni, of his people, and declares his intention to Moshe to save them from the hands of Egypt. All this leads to the following formulation. As part of the Egyptians' ongoing attempt to control and wear down the children of Israel, the Egyptians afflicted their Israelite slaves. This action is first signified in the text by the phrase lema'an anoto, 
Out of love of Israel, God thwarts the Egyptians' plan. He causes them to multiply and eventually redeems the children of Israel from the hardships of Egypt. God is the anti-affliction figure in this story. But later on in Moshe's recounting of the story of the desert journey and the man, things seem to reverse themselves. In describing God's actions and motivation in the story of the man, Moshe states that God led the people in the desert 40 years, l'ma'an anotcha, in order to afflict you. But this, of course, is the near exact phrase utilized to introduce the Egyptians' oppression of their slaves. In other words, the deliberate causing of hardship by God seems like an Egypt-like act. It seems out of character with the nature of God and his relation to Israel. In point of fact, the theological problem of God's justice, or as restructured here, the consistency of God's character in relation to the children of Israel, constitutes but the tip of the metaphorical iceberg. As pointed out above, God's primary agenda in providing the man is to test the children of Israel. In Moshe's formulation in Sefer Dvarim, the rationale of hardship or affliction, l'man anotcha, provided for the desert journey, is immediately followed by the term l'nasotcha, the testing of the children of Israel constitutes both the real purpose of the just-mentioned hardship or affliction and the rationale for the entire stretch of recent history, the desert journey, the near starvation, and the provision of the man over a 40-year period. But this is bizarre. What need does God have to test the children of Israel? While it is in itself theologically difficult to formulate the question this way, let us be bold. What could possibly comprise God's motivation? In this instance, the standard philosophical formulation of the problem of Nisayon should be of some assistance. By no accident, Maimonides' discussion of the problem of God's justice inherent in our story serves as an introduction to his extensive discussion of the problem of Nisayon. At the tail end of his discussion, Maimonides warns against the imaginings of ignorant fools and their evil thoughts. He warns against the possibility that God tests man in order to find out information that he has not previously known, as God is omniscient, and knows not just the past and present, but the future as well, there exists no possibility that he tests in order to achieve knowledge. Such a reading constitutes a philosophical impossibility. But in point of fact, this interpretation seems to be the simple sense of the biblical text. The text almost unfailingly connects the term and concept of Nisayon with the idea of knowledge. As cited above, in a clear echo of God's words in Sefer Shemot, Moshe informs the children of Israel that God has led them on their journey, afflicted them, and fed them the man to test you, l'nasotcha, to know, ladat, that which was in your hearts. Similarly, later on in Dvarim, Moshe warns the people from following after the false prophet who urges the worship of other gods. In explaining the fact that the false prophet performs valid signs and wonders, Moshe maintains that it constitutes an occasion upon which the Lord your God tests you, Minaseh, to know, Ladat, whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart. Finally, in the first and most well-known of the four contexts in which the Torah describes God as testing, Breshid informs us that God tested Nisa, Avraham. The story of the binding, the Akedah, reaches its crescendo with the last moment call of the angel. Just as Avraham takes the knife to slaughter Yitzchak, an angel calls from heaven to stay his hand. The angel of the Lord commands Abraham not to lay his hand upon the lad, for now I know, ata yadati, that you fear God. Abraham's readiness to sacrifice Yitzchak has been demonstrated, and there is no need for the actual deed. To put this together, 
the constant conjunction of testing and knowledge, as well as the formulation of the just-cited passages, seems to imply a causal relation between testing and knowledge. God tests in order to gain knowledge. He tests Abraham to find out whether he is in fact truly God-fearing, and tests the children of Israel to know what is in their hearts and investigate whether they will follow his commands. But this seems difficult, to say the least. Is not God all-knowing? What possible need does he have to test humanity? As Maimonides would have it, is this not just the opinion of fools? A comprehensive analysis of the thorny theological issues and philosophical problems raised until this point remain far beyond the scope of our discussion. The issues of God's justice and knowledge raised by the story of the man and the biblical idea of trial have preoccupied thinkers for quite a while and are not clearly resolvable in a neat fashion. Nevertheless, let us not despair, as in many other cases the text may yet lead the way to some sort of resolution. At the very least, it may provide insight and allow us to tilt towards one of the existent interpretations of Nisayon. With this in mind, let us turn our attention back to Moshe's discourse upon the desert journey, the man and the concept of trial found in Parashat Ekev, the locus of his previously cited speech. The two verses containing the problematic references to God's afflicting and testing the children of Israel are in fact embedded in a larger speech of Moshe urging the Israelites to keep the commandments. In almost stereotypical fashion for Sefer Dvarim, Moshe opens his address with a prompting to keep all the commandments commanded this day. This, of course, will lead to success in possessing and flourishing in the land promised to the forefathers. At this point, Moshe segues to the importance of memory, memory of the journey through the desert, God's affliction of the people, God's testing of the people, the man, and the miraculous nature of the people's preservation in the desert. In sum, the material discussed previously. At this point, Moshe moves to what appears to be the logical terminus of this particular segment of Moshe's address. He returns again to the topic of the commandments, urging the people once again to keep the commandments. You shall know in your heart that just as a man disciplines his son, so too the Lord your God disciplines you. And you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. At this point, we may well wonder as to the overall logical flow of the narrative. Throughout Sefer Dvarim, Moshe stresses the connection between keeping the mitzvot and reward and punishment. Keeping the commandments leads to reward, and violating the commandments leads to punishment. So too in part of the text cited here. Similarly, Moshe often links historical memory and the commandments. Out of gratitude for God's kindness, providential care, and miracles, the children of Israel should keep the commandments. Once again, so too in part of the text cited here. Yet these themes do not constitute the entirety of the passage, nor even its central motif. Rather, it is God's mysterious afflicting and testing of Israel that constitutes the centerpiece of the passage. But in what sense does or can God's testing of Israel lead to increased fidelity to his commands? The logic seems obscure. Rather than confronting the logical problem head-on, let us first continue on with the structure of the larger Keep the Commandments memory narrative, in which we find Moshe's mention of the man and the problematic doctrine of affliction and testing. This may be of some help. While there is no real substitute for looking at the entirety of this lengthy piece of text, the following will have to suffice for now. The overall structure of the speech can be mapped out as follows. Segment 1, Keeping the Commandments remembering God's leading the people on a desert journey, God's afflicting, testing, the man, and God's providence. Segment 2, 
the goodness of the land, and thankfulness to God. And segment three, the danger of forgetting God and not keeping the commandments. Forgetting God and his providence on the desert journey, attribution of success to the power and might of my own hand. Although this only provides a partial picture of the general thrust of the narrative, it should be readily apparent that segments one and three stand in a relation of opposition. While segment one focuses on keeping the commandments, remembering and recognition of God, segment three focuses on the linguistic and conceptual opposites of these notions. In segment three, Moshe refers to the possibility of not keeping the commandments, forgetting, and the attribution of success to one's own might, a failure to recognize God. Bearing this relationship in mind, let us take a careful look at the language of segment three. The latter part of Moshe's commandments and memory speech reads as follows, Guard yourselves, lest you forget the Lord your God and not keep his commands, that I command you this day, lest you eat and become satiated, build good houses and dwell in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you through that great and terrible desert where there was no water, who brought forth water for you from a rock, who fed you man in the desert which your fathers did not know, so as to cause you hardship, so as to test you, to do you good at your latter end. And you will say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And you should remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to make wealth. As pointed out previously, in contrast to section 1 of his address, where Moshe twice stresses keeping the commandments that I command you this day, here Moshe raises the specter of not keeping the commandments that I command you this day. Similarly, in a second obvious contrast between the two segments, in the latter part of his speech, Moshe twice mentions forgetting. The people will forget God and not keep his commandments. They will forget God who redeemed them from Egypt and led them on the desert journey. This, of course, contrasts with the imperative to remember the whole way which God has led you, found in segment one. But there is more to it than this. The process of forgetting, not keeping the commandments, in the latter part of Moshe's address is tied up with a third symbol, that of the heart. As a result of inhabiting the good land and finding success, the children of Israel's heart will become raised. In more colloquial terminology, they will become arrogant, prideful, and egotistical. In the second usage of the term found in the segment, Moshe predicts the people will say in their heart, in other words, begin to believe and claim that it was their own power and might that has led them to their success. But of course, as Moshe points out in the last sentence of his speech, in a return to the remembering-forgetting symbolism of the passage, the people should remember that it is God who has given them the strength to succeed. The state of an elevated, arrogant, and fundamentally unknowing heart contrasts with the usage of the term heart in the first part of Moshe's speech. As cited earlier on, the first part of Moshe's speech terminates with the following words, You shall know in your heart that just as a man disciplines his son, so too the Lord your God disciplines you, and you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. To put this all together, the first and third parts of Moshe's long mitzvot and memory speech comprise complementary opposites. In other words, while they constitute linguistic opposites, they both intend the same purpose. The first part outlines what we might term the positive state of a knowing heart. The people remember 
and hence possess a humble and knowing heart that fears God. In consequence, they keep the commandments. The third part outlines the opposite and negative state, what we may term the state of an ignorant heart. The people forget, and hence possess an arrogant and ignorant heart. Having forgotten God and attributing their success to their own powers, they abandon the commandments. But of course, the latter state is highly undesirable. As such, Moshe closes the latter part of his speech with one last plea to remember, to remember God, and to remember that he is one who grants strength and success. In other words, he emphasizes once again the importance of the positive state, of the knowing, remembering heart. This brings us to a fourth linguistic connection between the two segments of Moshe's speech, and back to the twin issues of hardship, affliction, and testing. In addition to its references to forgetting, commandments, and the heart, the latter segment of Moshe's address also echoes the first segment by referring to the whole complex of the desert journey, the man, God's causing hardship and affliction, and testing of the children of Israel. Immediately following the mention of the danger of a raised heart, Moshe delineates the contents of this experiential and cognitive state. The people will forget God who led you, Hamulichacha, in the desert, and who fed you man. This, of course, constitutes a near-perfect parallel to the historical references found earlier in the first part of Moshe's speech. In the prior, positively phrased part of his address, Moshe had already told the children of Israel that God has led you in the desert. Likewise, Moshe had already told the people that God fed you the man. More importantly, as part of the history lesson, in a highly precise echo of the previous mention of the affliction, hardship, and testing, Moshe once again raises the problematic terms of Inui and Nisayon, who fed you man in the desert which your fathers did not know, so as to cause you hardship, so as to test you, to do you good at your latter end. Just as previously the man was part of a deliberate regime of hardship, affliction, and trial, so too here the man is part of a deliberate regime of hardship, affliction, and trial. Apparently, the complex of historical memory, the man, and the experiences of hardship and trial play a key role in the knowing, remembering heart, ignorant, fearful heart dialectic that comprises the core of Moshe's Keep the Commandments speech. Consequently, on the textual plane, the complex comprises the centerpiece of both the positive and negative formulations that respectively comprise the first and last parts of Moshe's speech. On the simplest level, the role is that of contents. Part of what the knowing heart knows and remembers is the history of God's afflicting, trying, and sustaining the children of Israel. Part of what the ignorant heart forgets is exactly that history, the history of God's afflicting, trying, and sustaining the children of Israel. On a deeper level, a careful reading of the text may indicate that remembering the historical complex of hardship, trial, and sustenance, or its forgetting, plays a causal role in the knowing-remembering-heart-ignorant-forgetful-heart dialectic under discussion. Moshe, in fact, seems to state such in the first part of his speech. As pointed out previously, Moshe opens the first part of his speech with a general prompting to keep the commandments, and then moves to the imperative of remembering the journey and the entire complex of hardship, trial, and sustenance. At this point, the segment turns to the theme of knowing in one's heart, and the purpose stated at the start, keeping the commandments. In other words, remembering affliction, trial, and sustenance is what comprises and creates the existential state of the knowing heart. Affliction, trial, and sustenance are what eventually lead, through the intermediaries of historical memory and the knowing heart, to the keeping of the commandments. By logic, the exact reverse is true in the latter part of Moshe's speech, the forgetting of God and history, the forgetting of hardship, affliction, trial, and sustenance is not so much the internal state, 
the contents of the forgetful, ignorant heart, but also its cause. By forgetting history, the children of Israel run the risk of becoming arrogant. They stand to fall prey to an elevated heart and will eventually deviate from the path of God and His commandments. Once again, affliction, trial, and sustenance, by virtue of preventing and negating the forgetful, ignorant, and arrogant heart, are meant to lead to keeping of the commandments. To put this together, affliction and hardship, trial and divine sustenance, are meant to comprise a transformative historical experience for the children of Israel, one whose benefit echoes down through the generations, that attempts to guarantee continued loyalty to God and His commandments. While this may sound highly abstract, the text seems to support this claim in a highly concrete fashion. As emphasized previously, the mentions of affliction, hardship, and testing in the two halves of Moshe's speech parallel each other in a precise fashion. Yet this is not completely correct. In fact, the two sentences contain one apparently glaring disparity. This can best be seen by juxtaposing the two references. First, the knowing heart, so as to cause you hardship, or afflict you, to test you, to know that which was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And the second, the forgetting heart, so as to cause you hardship, or afflict you, so as to test you, to do you good at your latter end. While the first segment of Moshe's address defines the purpose of affliction and trial as to know the contents of people's hearts and investigate their fidelity to the commandments, the latter part of Moshe's address defines the purpose of affliction and trial as somehow granting a future benefit to the people. While it may seem mysterious how these two phrases mean the same thing, the normal rules of parallelism and the overarching macro-parallel between the two segments indicate that such is indeed the case. Somehow, investigating the hearts of the children of Israel, trying their shmirat mitzvot, their keeping of the commandments, benefits the people in the long run. To put this in the terminology utilized earlier, affliction and trial constitute a transformative historical experience, one that builds the knowing and humble heart and negates the forgetful and arrogant heart. As such, they contribute through the means of the knowing, remembering heart to the people's future keeping of the commandments. As the text phrases it, to do you good. In afflicting and trying the people, God benefits the people. Somehow, the search for a heart committed to God's commandments generates exactly the object of the search. It builds commitment to the commandments. But this still seems mysterious. How does the complex of affliction, trial, and sustenance build commitment to the commandments? This piece of the puzzle may in turn be found in yet another of the Torah's Nisayon stories, the as-yet-unmentioned story of the trial at Sinai. Upon perceiving the thunder, lightning, and fire at Sinai, the people fled. Shmot informs us that the people were shaken and stood far off. They requested of Moshe that he act as intermediary. They no longer wished to hear the voice of God in an unmediated fashion, lest they die. In response, Moshe attempts to quell the people's panic. He informs them that God is come to test you, so that his fear will be upon you, and so that you will not sin. In this passage, Moshe advocates the exact same position he later maintains in Sefer Dvarim regarding God's trying of the children of Israel. The purpose of a Nisayon is to benefit the children of Israel. The benefit is manifested in an increased fidelity to God's commandments, in the formulation of Shmot, the prevention of sin. The link between the experience of the trial and the commitment to the commandments occurs via the religious virtue of Yirah, translated as fear or awe of heaven. The experience of the trial is an experience of awe and fear of heaven. As such, the experience itself, 
or a properly internalized and assimilated memory of such an experience serves as a spur to loyalty to God and consequently results in the keeping of his commandments. By no surprise, Moshe's second mention of the keeping of the commandments that follows upon the imperative to remember the trial of the desert and the man closes with the mention of the fearing of God. But there is more to it than this. As mentioned earlier, in his numerous references to trial and the man in his mitzvot and memory speech, Moshe refers not just to hardship, but also to divine providence. He refers not just to suffering, but also to sustenance. In a similar vein, when Moshe explains the signs performed by false prophets as stemming from God's interest in testing the people, he refers not just to testing, knowing, hearts, and fear of God, but also to loving God. In other words, a trial does not just revolve around the religious virtue of fear and awe of heaven. It also revolves around the religious virtue of love. It intends to stir and form the mix or balance of fear and love of heaven that comprises the ideal religious personality. As such, the trial of the man includes not just the hardship and trying of the people, but also their miraculous sustenance. Awe or fear, love and fidelity to God and his commandments are meant to be the result. To close, let us try to tidy up some loose ends. By now, we should no longer need to worry about the problem we began with, the problem of God's justice, or Egyptian-like action. God's causing of hardship to Israel should be understood as part of a process of education, as part of a process of building the religious virtue of awe and fear of heaven. It is intended to benefit Israel and help them, both now and in the future, in following God's word and fidelity to his commandments. As Moshe puts it in a sentence of his speech, we have as yet let languish. For as a father disciplines a son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Similarly, we have gone a long way to unpacking the Torah's notion of Nisayon, the idea of a trial. It represents an experience meant to influence the one tried. As Ramban puts it in his comment on the trial of Abraham, a trial is for the benefit of the one tested. In the particular variation of this interpretation presented above, a trial aims to build the religious virtues of love and fear of God, to build the knowing heart that maintains fidelity to God's word and follows his commands. In this light, we no longer need to worry about another one of the issues raised along the way, the connection between undergoing a trial and the outcome of following God's command. A trial leads to love and fear, and love and fear lead to keeping the commandments. Yet nevertheless, much remains unresolved, particularly the linguistic problem of Nisayon mentioned earlier. As pointed out above, and adamantly rejected by Maimonides, three of the four contexts of God's testing stress the connection between testing and knowledge. The parasha of the false prophet, the parasha of Moshe's mitzvot and memory speech, and the Akedah all seem to suggest a certain causal relationship between God's testing and knowledge. God tests in order to know, to arrive at knowledge. God tests to know the hearts of the tested, and the apparent move is from ignorance or lack of knowledge to knowledge. This problem still remains standing. While there exist many solutions to this problem, much of our analysis has constituted an attempt to perform a revolutionary turn on this problem and to provide the sketch of a particular possible solution. As our discussion of Moshe's mitzvot and memory speech should demonstrate, God's search for knowledge, his investigation of the heart of Israel by providing the man and its attendant commandments, is not about garnering knowledge or creating a state of knowing for himself. Rather, it is about building and actualizing the remembering or knowing heart of Israel. The experience of undergoing the trial and keeping the commandments of the trial creates a move from ignorance and not knowing, not so much for God, 
but for Israel. The central move from absence to presence happens in the heart of the tested that can now be said to be a knowing or loyal and obedient heart. Again, as Ramban briefly puts it in his comments on the Akedah, a test involves movement from potential to actual on the part of the tested. But there is more to it than this. As briefly mentioned earlier, on the literary plane, God's search for knowledge of Israel's heart, his investigation, generates the very knowledge, the very heart sought out. God's quest for the love and fear of God is met by the development and springing into being of precisely that which he seeks. In sum, God's search for knowledge, the thorny linguistic problem of Nisayon, constitutes not so much an epistemic quest or even an educational act. Rather, it constitutes a creative act. In the final analysis, the moment of Nisayon constitutes a creative partnership between the divine tester and the human subject, a moment in the religious relation of God and Israel. He seeks us out, and we must rise to his service. On both the linguistic and philosophical planes, he wishes to know us, and we must make ourselves known.